Turn again in your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, reading from verse 24. We will read to chapter 2, verse 25. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 24. Hear God's word. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. What does it mean to be human? There are uh, quite a few different answers given to that question today, some explicitly, many times implicitly. The secular humanism, which is becoming so dominant in our culture, implicitly makes us into gods and at the same time degrades us to be no more than animals. Highly evolved mammals, we're the present lords of creation, but in their view, presumably we are doomed like the dinosaurs to fade and be replaced. Worse, if you follow the logic of their views, secularism leaves humanity as nothing but a cosmic accident. It dresses this up in scientific language about evolution and tries to make out that there's a traceable path of development. But their idea of evolution means that we are the accidental result of random physical processes. If you follow out their philosophy, their view, I won't call it science, they believe that the present world is the result of nothing, absolute nothing, plus lots of time, plus chance. They live in blind faith that nothing plus Lots and lots of time. You've got to have lots of time because it's so unlikely that nothing would start something anyway. And then you've got to say, go through all the various changes necessary to eventually get to the world as we know it. And every, every one of those changes is hugely unlikely. So they have lots of time. So it masks the fact that this is impossible. Nothing plus lots of time and chance can produce everything that exists, they think. It's blind faith because it's opposed to at least three of the best established scientific theories of our time. Indeed, the last 200 years. It's blind faith because there is zero evidence to support it. Secular religion means that people have no inherent value because we're just accidents. 
the environmental movement is being heard more and more in our day, and it has in some ways a more realistic view, though it subscribes to the secular humanism. It sees man almost as a blemish on the face of the world, a destroyer to be curbed because we are squeezing out other species. It has built into it a bit of a dim conception of human sin. Mystics, now they see man as just one expression of the cosmic all and nothing matters much to what happens to us. The overall result of all of these ideas beliefs is a grievous devaluation of your humanity. Your humanity is reduced to having value only if it functions profitably. That may mean profitably in the sense somebody appreciates you, loves you, enjoys you, but uh, you have to have some use to have value. There's no inherent reason left to care for or protect other people. The non-productive lose their value. Those judged not to have a good quality of life should be put out of their supposed misery. There's no reason to protect the weak if they're in any way awkward. As well... These views call into question the relationship between men and women. Masculinity in men and femininity in women is considered undesirable by some. Masculinity is understood to imply brutal tyranny. Femininity is seen to mean subservience. And the response is to try to deny any distinctions. Men pursue effeminate ways. Women strive for what is perceived to be masculine assertiveness. And the relationship between the two is thoroughly confused. It's a small wonder that we have men today who think of themselves as women and vice versa. Because we've mucked up the views, their understanding. And again, it goes against all the evidence. So what do we say to this situation? Well, the biblical record of creation gives us the true answer. It teaches us that we are special because we are created in God's image. None of the other beings has that. It puts mankind into an intelligible context. It shows that you and every other human being have inherent value. It teaches you how to relate to other creatures as well as to other men and women. It's a very practical application of the doctrine that we were created in God's image. That's our theme today. I'm doing a series of sermons here on doctrine to be lived. Doctrine is not something you're just supposed to tuck up in your head and say, okay, I understand that. You're to live it. You're to, every doctrine has things for you to do to fill it out. In this particular doctrine that we're created in God's image teaches us three particular things that shape our living. It's a doctrine which teaches the essential work, worth of all mankind, every person, everywhere. It's a doctrine which teaches the equality of the sexes. And it's a doctrine which teaches environmental stewardship, these three things. First, it teaches us the essential worth 
of all people, all mankind. The Bible tells us that we are made in God's image, all of us. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We read in Genesis 1.26. What does it mean that God created man in his image? It's not physical because God did not have a body. Not until Christ became man. We get a clue in Ephesians 4.24 where we read, Put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Being created in God's image means we were created righteous and holy. We were free from any deeds of evil. We were free from any inclination to sin, to evil. And as such, we reflected God's nature. Of course, he is righteous and holy, free from any sin and any evil. Similarly, Colossians 3.10 speaks of the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Renewed in what knowledge? How did Adam and Eve's knowledge differ in kind from ours? Well, they knew good, but they did not yet know evil. Being made in God's image means being, implies the knowledge of good and knowledge of God's ways. The ability to see what God wants us to do and how we should live as we follow God. God made mankind then in part, or to share in part at least, in God's nature. God is spirit, we read in John 4.24. And here in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Hebrew word for breath and spirit are the same. And when God talks to us of breathing the breath of life into us, he's surely telling us he gave us a spirit. He gave a spirit to man, so made him like God, who is spirit. We have a spiritual moral nature and it's small and limited, but it's it's in that dim way shows us what God is and we show what God is as we walk in that. In this, we are essentially different from the animals around us. Not one of the animals had its being breathed into it by God. No animal knows anything of righteousness or holiness. They cannot be unrighteous or unholy any more than they can be righteous. They can be ruly, unruly, disobedient, obedient, disobedient. If you've ever had a pet, you know that. But they can be helpful. They can be a hindrance. They can be pleasant. They can be unpleasant. But they cannot be righteous or unrighteous. That's only possible for people. For you and me, for men and women made in the image of God. People are not just particularly capable mammals, as the secularists would have us think. It's no doubt we have much physically in common with mammals, a great deal. But we are far more than just physical, far more than just animals, far more even than the intelligent animals, the speculation that dolphins or whales may be able to think as clearly as we do, these intelligent humans. 
If that were true, it would still not put them on the same level as we are. Our distinction is that we are created in the image of God. We are created capable of dealing on a moral level. Brothers and sisters, friends, rejecting this has led to a grievous devaluation of your humanity. When creation in God's image is rejected, your value is reduced to whatever you're able to give others. It may be work and labor or things that you have. It may be just the joy of knowing a little child or something like this. But your value lies in what you give. And the non-productive lose their value. We're told that those judged not able to have a good quality of life should be put out of their misery, their supposed misery. We don't usually ask them whether they have a good quality of life or not. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen people with severe disabilities uh, appear before the United States government and talk about how good their quality of life is and how glad they were that they weren't aborted. But we abort children who are expected to have disabilities. The fruit of the humanist debasement of humanity is confusion on the issue of killing. Self-made moral rules have led us to forbid capital punishment. I don't think they look at all the underlying reasons for this. One key reason for that is that people, their belief that people have no inherent value. That means that murder is not really all that bad. It's destruction of something which has no special value. So property crimes are seen as much worse and given much more severe penalties often because they damage what is valuable to us. The opponents of capital punishment, of course, would not argue that people have no inherent value. But I would suggest that that idea, though it's not thought out, is helps to shape their opinion. Capital punishment seems unjust to them, in part because they don't think murder is really that bad. Not bad enough to call for execution. Then they say, you, do, you execute them, you put yourself on the same level as they are. You do something to... Somebody with no value, with no reason. The same debasement of humanity, which denies capital punishment of murderers, allows the execution of those who are not valued, the unborn. If their parents don't want them, they're not seen to have any inherent value to protect them. If they're likely to be crippled or something, Down syndrome, whatever, there's no inherent value in the people's minds to protect them. And some have taken the next step and argue that parents should be able to put problem kids to death. And debate about how old they should be before they're safe. It takes us right back to the days of Rome when the head of the family could freely kill anybody in his family. No guilt. No guilt. 
before the law. And there are the sick and the suffering. And now we have medically assisted death. You know, uh, put them out of their misery like you would a dog or a cat. Because in that view, people have no more inherent value than a dog or a cat. And very often, they don't even ask the person if they're in misery. The elderly who can no longer pay their way. The handicapped. Guess why all the organizations for the handicapped oppose the assisted suicide laws? They know that they are in danger by those laws. The value of all of these is diminished in the eyes of the materialists. Their pain and their care troubles others so they can be removed. They believe it's wrong, it's evil to execute those who do wrong. But it's okay to execute the weak who have harmed no one. The contrast is very dramatic. But you're not just an animal. You are not just an animal. You are special. You are precious. You are made to know and reflect God, and that makes you special. Each person has inherent worth as an image of God. It doesn't matter how weak or how handicapped the person may be. It's not a physical image that we're looking at. Quality of life has nothing to do with it. Jesus had no very great quality of life when he was hanging on the cross. I think you would agree that's a very unpleasant place to be. It doesn't matter your strength. It doesn't matter your weakness. God made you special. He made you precious in his sight. So all murder is forbidden by God. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Murder is wrong because we were made in the image of God. An animal may be killed if it becomes inconvenient. A human may not. In his heart, a murderer is attacking God. You know what it means to burn someone in effigy? You know, you make a a straw figure that's supposed to represent the person you really think deserves to be horribly punished, and you burn it. You're saying, this guy should be dead. When the murderer, well, we're the image of God. When the murderer attack someone, he is attacking the image of God. He's, it's like burning God in effigy. He's symbolically attacking God. It's very serious. And so God removes the murderer's right to life. Capital punishment is not our vengeance because the crime so horrifies us. That's the way it's portrayed by many Murderers should be executed because people who are made in God's image are responsible for their deeds. We should execute them because God declares that the murderer is to pay a price matching the harm that he or she did. It's justice, not vengeance. Capital punishment upholds respect for human life. And this is something a lot of who are pro-life don't really understand. Because we've been led down a garden track. It holds 
It also upholds respect for God. It's pro-life. And Canadian experience demonstrates that very clearly. If you go to Statistics Canada and dig out the statistics on murder for the period, say, from 1955 to 1975. Along about 1959, the cabinet started commuting every capital sentence. Long about 1965, people began to realize nobody was going to be executed anymore. What you see in those statistics, you know, people will tell you after the law was changed forbidding capital punishment, there is no increase in murder. That's true. But in the 10 years before that, when it was clear that nobody was going to be executed, the murder rate went... And the statistics show that far more people were murdered than would ever have possibly been executed because there was no more execution of murderers. Capital punishment is decreed by God because it defends life. It reflects the fact that all people have huge value because we're made in God's image. Therefore, we're pro-life. The second thing we see in the fact that we're made in God's image, the doctrine that we're made in God's image, is the equality of the sexes. God made us male and female. We read the abbreviated record of the end of the whole process of creation in the beginning in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2 looked at the more detailed expression of it as he talked about the creation of man and woman and our beginnings. The existence of two sexes is not just convenience for reproduction. It didn't need to be that way. There are some creatures which reproduce without cross-fertilization. God could have made us that way if he wanted. Eve was specifically formed because she was the comparable helper that Adam needed, that Adam lacked, that none of the other creatures could fulfill for him. Man needed woman and woman man. We were created to complement one another, to complete one another, and on more than a physical level. That means that a man-to-man or woman-to-woman relationship can't provide what the man-to-woman relationship does. Homosexuality is a degradation of what God made us to be. It's part of the human degradation of our our own humanity since our fall. Striving to be like God, to be gods. We made ourselves less than human. Men should rejoice in the masculinity that God gave them. Women should rejoice in the femininity that God has given them. And we should rejoice together when God enables men and women to share in marriage, come together and complement one another, build one another. In this doctrine, we see the equality of the sexes set at the very deepest level. And it's not an accident. 
that the freedom and status for women has grown where the Bible has been honored as God's word. You might take a map and uh, mark on it in blue the areas where God's word has had a strong impact on the country over the last 500 years or so. And then mark in red the areas where women's freedom and equality of men and women has been promoted and pushed. You'll find that the same. They're the same because it's the Bible that teaches us that we are equal. It took us took many centuries to filter out our sin. The fact that men are bigger and stronger generally meant that men pushed women around over millennia. But gradually, gradually in the church they began to realize this is against the Bible. More and more. And in fact eventually affected our society. God teaches us not to devalue anyone. The sexes have equal status. Men and women alike are made in God's image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. It means there's an inherent equality between the sexes at the most fundamental level. Each of us gains his or her value from the same source. We are all made in God's image. We are all made to show in as far as we're humanly able what God is. We're all made spiritual beings capable of good. And sadly, when that image was marred by sin, we all turned to evil, to corruption. Any view which degrades women or men is part of that corruption. It's unbiblical. Those who degrade women or men sin against God. That's not to say there are no differences between men and women. Some of them are very obvious. The sexual differences are obvious. The fact that on the average men are bigger, stronger, faster than women. You know, the the Olympic athlete quality people, the men are bigger, stronger, faster. They Average ones of us, men are bigger, stronger, faster than the average women and so on down the line. On the average, it's that way. These are obvious. Some are only general tendencies. Women tend to do better in languages, men in math. It's a tendency which has many exceptions, but it still marks a difference between the two sexes. But the differences do not make one of less worth than the other. If anything, the differences enhance the other's worth. Because men need women's different ability. Women need men's different abilities. These differences should enhance your valuation of one another. And your corresponding care for one another. The bottom line, though, is that we are all made in God's image and so equal. The third thing that we want to see that this doctrine of creation in God's image teaches us is environmental stewardship. When God made us in his image, the whole creation belongs to God. It's his. He rules it, right? You understand that. 
He made us as rulers under him to rule over the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26. Again, we're shown that man is not just another animal. We are man, we're made as rulers. And as such, we are an image of God's rule. And that shows up the error of the environmental extremists we see around today. Though I think in our day we need to have a fair bit of sympathy for those environmental extremists. You walk down almost any street or road and what do you see? Uh, papers and drinking glasses and uh, bags and who knows what garbage that people just dropped on the street, right? Or out in the country, along the, the path they're walking on, beautiful countryside, along the side of the road. Then there's indiscriminate pesticide use which kills beneficial insects and then starves the birds and the bats. You drive in the forest, you see the devastation of the clear cuts. And you can sympathize with the extremists in the environmental movement. Nonetheless, the world is made for our use. And people weigh more in the balance than other creatures when there are conflicting interests. That does not mean we have a warranty to destroy the earth. God's rule is helpful. It's kind, it's strengthening. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. He provides for all of us. And ours should have a similar character. Adam was put in the Garden of Eden and directed to tend it and to keep it, we read. He wasn't put in it to destroy it and tear it apart. A good gardener, and I at least appreciate this because my wife is a gardener, a good gardener works very hard to get the most from his or her garden. You know, they seek to enrich the soil, not to destroy it, because otherwise you may get a good crop this year, but next year you've got nothing, you know. It, a good gardener provides the care necessary for the plants to grow and to produce, to be strong. And that's the pattern that God sets for human rule over the earth. We should tend it and nurture it, not ravish it and ruin it. We should leave some beauty and usefulness for the next generation to enjoy instead of grabbing all that we can for ourselves. And what we do can be pretty horrible. I remember this was quite a few years ago, driving into a park in northern Quebec where Lois and I planned to camp overnight on a trip we were making. We'd found it on the map. We followed the road in, and we drove for miles through what looked like a moonscape. It had been forest, but it had been stripped of vegetation, and the remnants piled in heaps and valleys, and it was just a, a mess. And after quite a few miles through that, we found one tiny wooded area surrounding a small lake with a campground. 
It was a very beautiful, tiny spot. But the beauty and usefulness of all that land around it had been destroyed for at least 40 or 50 years, if not more. That's far from what God approves. It's far from tending and caring for it. Remember that the world does not belong to you and me or to any, to all of us together. We're to rule as the stewards of creation. We are God's managers, God's overseers. The world and its contents belong to God. God gave Israel the land of Canaan very directly to be their land. He told the people to divide it among themselves so everybody got a fair share. And then he added, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Leviticus 25, verse 23. Each family in Israel was given their farm or whatever the chunk of piece of land they needed, but the land still belonged to God. There were special reasons for that command, and this that time I won't go into those. It was a promise that our place in heaven would not be lost. But it remains true that the world belongs to God who made it. As we belong to God, whether or not we acknowledge it. The world was given into your hands to use. But not into your hands to abuse and ruin. It's part of your inheritance as Christians. I hope you're all Christians. If you're not, you should take very seriously the horror of walking away from Christ and his teaching in these things and come to him. Imagine a rich uncle tells you he's leaving you a business which will produce an income of $300,000 a year. And he gives you a job in it on a moderate salary for now. Would you carry out that job in a way which destroys the business? Wouldn't be very smart, would it? You know, you destroy what's going to be a rich inheritance for you. You destroy it, it'll be run down and unable to give you the income that's promised. No, I don't think you would. Anybody here who would do that? Smart people, right? You would do your best indeed to improve it, wouldn't you? To make it work well, to make it prosper. Because in the end, it's going to be yours. The same principle applies in your stewardship of the earth. You are to govern it and use it in a way which will make it a desirable inheritance because we're going to inherit it with Christ. Made in the image of God. And the doctrine is not just an interesting fact. It's very profitable in terms of how we should live despite the fact that many see it as a problem. Good doctrine, a good understanding of God's teaching shows us how we ought to live as God's children. The doctrine of creation gives us a sane basis for interactions in our day. It establishes the inherent worth of every human being. We're made to reflect God. We're made to show his glory. And so it challenges a society which has degraded humans to point to point that those who are inconvenient can be killed. It protects you. It teaches the equality of the sexes. Men and women equally are in God's image. 
and you should rejoice in the sexual nature which God has given you. You're created to complement one another in a way impossible in same-sex relationships. And this should direct your life and your planning and your hopes and your desires. In this day when people tell you they don't really know what a girl is or a boy is, it's you know, you look at what God says and you know what it is. You can stand, reject that nonsense. It shows that you're far more than an animal. You're a spiritual being. You're capable of good or evil. You're capable of union with God in Christ. You've been placed in dominion over the world and appointed to care for and intend the world as God's steward. It shows mankind, all humanity, as a creature made by God. It casts down the humanist views which seek to put us on the level of gods and actually put us below the animals. It calls you to bow before the one true God who gives you this and turn away from all the false gods of our world who take it away from you. People today, though, are not what God made them to be. That image of God has been shattered by sin. And so, though we're made to do good, people turn instead to evil. People made to serve God seek to be gods. People made to be equal seek to dominate one another as tyrants. <coughs> people set as stewards over the earth, destroy it or idolize it. In Jesus Christ, though, that shattered image of Christ, God is renewed. I urge you today, look and see the blessings he gives you. Put your trust in him. If you never have before, do it now. And then you can begin again to walk the path that God formed you to walk. Then you can begin to fulfill what he made you to be. You find in him direction into the beauty that he made. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our sin against you. Forgive us for easily allowing the humanist, materialist ideas of this world to infiltrate our hearts and turn us away from the values you give us. Forgive us for forgetting that we are made in your image and in doing that, forgetting that we should be living in a way that reflects you. Help us. Help us, Lord, again to value our humanity, to value it even more as we see its roots in our creation. Help us in a world in which sex and sexuality are becoming areas of conflict and dis uncertainty and grief and <clears throat> in some case mental illness issues tied into it that becomes so bad. Help us in that world to see clearly how you made us and to value what you made us and live that. Help us, Lord, to look at this world you've made and be builders, not destroyers in it. Give us the grace to walk as your children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, 
As you draw near now to the Lord's table, I'd urge you to consider how great are the benefits of this sacrament if you come to it with understanding and faith and repentance, with your soul hungering and thirsting for, for Christ. Remember that as you take part in this sacrament, you are brought into the presence of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. You don't want that unless you come depending on Christ to take you as his. Without Christ, we read, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Without Christ, you come before your judge. And Paul warns you that those who eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And he adds that some have died because of this. So if you have not yet turned to follow Christ, we're glad you're here. We're very glad you're here. But we can't encourage you to join in the Lord's Supper right now. Instead, we urge you to consider carefully the message of this table. Christ loved us enough and is portrayed here to pay the penalty for our sins by dying for us. His blood was shed for us, symbolized in the wine. His body broken for us, symbolized in the bread. And he invites you to come to him and be fed. The blessings of Christ are for real Christians. Paul wrote, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. <coughs> so ask yourself, do I live willingly in sin? Or have I repented and begun to struggle to set aside my sin? Do I think I'm good enough to win God's favor? Or do I depend on Christ to give me God's favor? Am I holding a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ, unwilling to forgive him or her? The Lord's table is a means by which God extends his grace to his people. Through it, he offers you strength to overcome your sins, not through the physical things we eat, but as we are drawn to him spiritually as we partake. So if you sorrow over your sins and you labor to turn away from them, if you desire to lead a new life and you trust Christ to make you pure, you are encouraged in Christ's name to come to his feast so that he may spiritually refresh you and renew your strength. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite to this table all who trust in Christ and who are baptized members of any evangelical church. The table belongs to Christ and by right to his people. All such who are present are lovingly urged to claim your rights in him. Listen to Christ's invitation. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. To help you in examining yourself if you're not sure of your place. The critical components of an evangelical Christian confession are listed in the six questions in the word to our visitors in the bulletin. If you can make those affirmations, you should come to Christ at his table for his blessing. As we serve the bread and the wine, we encourage you to take part as soon as you are served. 
The table is for Christ's people, so we come confessing our faith in him. I invite you to rise and join with me in confessing your faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. The modern translation we're using is in the red hymn book, the bright red hymn book, page 845, if you're not sure of it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is the God of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's approach our Lord. Father, we come to you. We are grateful for your provision of this tangible gospel that where we know the words that Christ died for our sin, now we, by tasting the elements you give us, are reminded in our bodies of his death. Make it real to us. Help us as we come here, not just to think of bread and wine, but to Think toward Christ and the cleansing and the strength that he gives us as we trust in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now lift up your hearts to God to receive his blessing. May the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.